Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. The Ukraine conflict continues to rage. Jim, some people are looking at it and speculating that the day of the main battle tank is over. What do you think? Well, the problem is the Russian tanks are different in in ways that are not advantageous for the Russians. For the other problem is when they sent them into sent their armor units in general into uh, Ukraine, they didn't follow the doctrine of having the tanks. Uh, gain information uh, via infantry or, you know, air support or what have you so that they could protect themselves against, you know, ambush. The Ukrainians <laughs> had figured that out and uh, they basically uh, were able to ambush the Russians before they even knew that they were in danger. Now, the Russian tanks, the, T-70, the, the T-72B, the one they, they favor over their T-90, uh, like all modern Russian tanks has an autoloader. And the problem with the autoloader is it has a lot of live ammunition in the turret, whereas the uh, the M1, the American M1, does not have an ammo loader. It, it has a uh, has a, uh, a system where the uh, gunner, the loader, the human loader, uh, gets one round at a time from the ammunition bus, which is, you know, the rear part of the, uh, of the turret, and uses it. Now, if the tank is hit, uh, it's unlikely that that one round is going to be caught, you know, as it were, vulnerable. And if there is an explosion, uh, the uh, in the in the in the ammo bus, the uh, the explosion will be vented backwards. It's designed that way. And in other words, the M1 has protection against the kinds of attacks that destroy Russian tanks. In fact, it's quite common if you look at the pictures of Russian tanks destroyed in the last you know few years. You'll notice that most of them, the turret is blown off. Now, why should the turret be blown off? Because there's a lot of ammunition in there ready to cook off the instant there's enough heat in the turret uh, to detonate, you know, something explosive. So the Russians were extremely vulnerable. They, their, their tanks were supposed to have, well, they do have, they have explosive reactive armor. Uh, the, the latest uh, T-72s have thicker armor, but... They are still vulnerable to top attack. They've tried to do that with reactive armor, but it hasn't worked against the uh, the Enlaw, uh, which is a short-range um, uh, javelin, as it were, or the javelin, both of which can employ top attack. And these were basically successful against the Russians. You know, devastating. You know, their tank force and their armor in general. Uh, the Russians apparently know this, but they have no quick solution. Other than to uh, give the the latest, they they finally appointed one general uh, to <laughs> to run the whole thing, and he's the guy who basically bought into what Assad was doing in driving all the uh, the pro rebel uh, Sunni Arabs out of the country, most of them anyway, to uh, you know permanently changing the ethnic mix of uh, of uh, Syria. The problem in Ukraine is the entire country. Well, there's a small proportion of the population that would prefer. You know, union with Russia, but they're, they're, the the quizzling faction is very small. 
So the Russians are faced with a nation in arms, and uh, and they really you know don't have any way to deal with this. And plus, the the Ukrainians keep coming up with new ways to embarrass the Russians. The latest one being the uh, sinking of their um, their their flagship in the uh, Black Sea, the uh, uh, the Slava class destroyer uh, Moskva, which two years ago underwent an extensive uh, you know uh, uh, refurbishment to update it. But uh, the Ukrainians figured out a way to bypass the uh, anti-missile defenses and tagged it with two of their Neptune. That's an improved Russian KH-35 uh, Harpoonsky, as, as we called it in our coverage and strategy page. And um, that was enough to get a fire going. And then it hit the magazines, it hit the live ammunition, and boom, uh, the uh, Moscow was you know, dead in the water. And then it was lost as the Russians tried to tow it back to the, the port of Crimea, their, their naval port, and it foundered, went under, and now they are, they are they're come, trying to come up with excuses. The latest excuse was it was actually a fire that started, and the 500-man crew, with all their damage control uh, training, couldn't deal with it, and uh, they had to abandon ship. Now, that's embarrassing enough, but they consider it less embarrassing than admitting that the Ukrainians. Austin, so- your turn. <laughs> Austin, what are your impressions of what's been happening with the armored forces there in Ukraine? Well, Jim touched on a, a, a design difference. Uh, you, at, at this point, uh, given the way Western tanks are armored and built, it's a design flaw. Uh, it, it would be fair to call it a design flaw. And the uh, 272 uh, series. I'm not sure how the Armada, which is what they're calling it, the T-14, Jim? Yeah. Said it? yeah. I, I'm not sure what its turret layout is like. Although well, it's, it's, not, it's an unmanned turret. I'm sorry? It's, it's unmanned. unmanned turret. Yeah, it's Still unmanned. Using, obviously using an autoloader. Sure. But and the, the crew, the two-man crew, are in an armored capsule. And which, so okay. they, they, are, they are less vulnerable to being blown up, but that doesn't stop the tank from going up. I, that's uh, that's right. One other comment on a two-man crew. It's hard maintaining a vehicle with just four men, as on American uh, on American tanks. You can do it with three. With two, uh, you're going to need uh, uh, maintenance assistance if you, uh, you know, drop a track or uh, on on anything, and, and plus security is, uh, uh, assistance. That's That may sound technical, but it's not, because you can get stuck in Ukrainian and Russian mud very, 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 uh, uh, very, very quick. Now, to get, to get back, I'm going to, Jim talked about the, the, the technical and technological uh, differences, and I've, I've seen a, a demonstration of how that blowback on the Abrams uh, system works, uh, and that that is how uh, how we built it, both for vehicle survivability, crew safety, crew survive, uh, crew uh, crew survivability, and the Russians did not. But Russia has given the world a look at both tactical and operational misuse of armor. Which uh, is surprised me. That's something that comes out of this war about how uh, chronically inept 
they have been, their officers have been. And it's reflected in, in poor training of the uh, uh, troops, the in, in individual vehicle crews. Uh, but the, the employment is, uh, it's inept. Uh, I'm going to talk about France, late 1940, uh, Battle of the Bulge. Now, just for a second, Dan. It's not new that infantry has to be with the tanks. And it, it, Jim knows a, a heck of a lot about Combat Command R, 4th Armored Division. Uh, that was, uh, uh, forget the colonel's name that 4th Armored had nominally in charge, but <coughs> the, t the two star battalions that often ended up together in Combat Command R uh, were Creighton Abrams, 37th Tank Battalion, and George Jocks's Armored Infantry Battalion. I forget the, the number. I uh, ought to know it. Both of those guys, you know, Abrams, Abrams Tank, both of those guys were absolutely elite uh, armor uh, mobile leaders. And they basically just mixed their companies. They fought with what they called Team A, which was A Company of the Tank uh, Battalion and A Company of the Armored Infantry Battalion. And when they could line them up, it would be like, one half track to one tank. They're same thing for their B team, same thing for, uh, thing for their C team. And I would tell the, the company commanders, you guys are making those together, but you know what the, you know what uh, your objective is, you've got mission orders. But right there you see the acknowledgement that a tank's power is enhanced when it works in conjunction, in this case, with armored infantry. Now, take a look at uh, Desert Storm. There you saw uh, the display of, and I, I've, when I've written about it, I call it the ballet, the uh, mechanized ballet that the U.S. Army had been seeking to perfect, going to Fort Irwin const constantly. And what do you have? Tanks mixed with Bradley's, uh, Second Armored Cav had its its scout Bradley's, you know, smaller you know, smaller detachments uh, uh, on that, you know, and the Armored Cav is is uh, uh, small combined arms uh, outfits themselves, but that's the way they would be tasked or, or organized. You might have a few uh, pure tank. Uh, companies uh, leading, not just for the, but to, but when you actually go into combat and you go into the off, uh, uh, offense, everybody's deployed and the infantry uh, on their Bradleys, uh, it's scratching fire is what it's called, either with machine guns or, or with the uh, 25 millimeter, keeping down uh, uh, enemy infantry. And also watching for targets for the uh, uh, for the tanks. And if you run into a, a, a situation where there's uh, the in infantry deploys out of the uh, out of the breath, you're fighting combined arms. Now I've just gone through the ground the way the American ar this American armor brigade works when it's in the offensive. It's got its flanks covered by attack helicopters. It's also got attack helicopters and drones over it. Above that, you've got the Air Force or Navy 
uh, well, not only clearing the skies, but if you've got A-10s, then you've got a gift from God because you've got fabulous close air support. Uh, tanks don't have to do uh, don't have to do the killing. What they're <laughs> they're everybody's looking to kill then is enemy anti-aircraft uh, uh, and surface-to-air uh, surface-to-air missiles. And on to put this to, uh, together uh, as well, I'll go back to uh, Jacques and, and, and Abrams. Both of their battalions had in uh, a headquarters company. 381 millimeter mortars in a half track, armored half track carrier. A lot of the time, they just created one super uh, 81 millimeter mortar platoon with with six tubes. Uh, that's they both had complete control over. And when whatever team was making uh, a main uh, uh, attack, they would be uh, they'd get that. Uh, uh, they they get those two combined uh, mortar platoons. That was their own artillery. Now another thing I didn't say that that but Combat Command R all had I'm forgetting the uh, number of it. It, it had uh, uh, armored self-propelled 105 battalion that it, at least in the Ardennes counteroffensive basically just followed uh, Abrams and Jock's. Uh, uh, armored uh, ar uh, ar armored advance. You support this uh, uh, in organization as it's moving with both uh, uh, long range fires, either from uh, either missiles, MLRS, or uh, or the aircraft, but also with uh, mobile howitzers and uh, the uh, mobile uh, 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 mortars. And where we use 120s now uh, at, in, uh, in the uh, battalion plat uh, platoon, but we got, still have plenty of uh, 81s. You use that both to provide smoke, uh, 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 obscure when you uh, the smoke is is useful, but also for suppressive fire and for uh, isolating uh, enemy uh, enemy pockets. Uh, uh, of resistance, so you can keep moving. Now, I think Jim's going to come back and say, Austin, you've described Fort Irwin or France. Actually, I could be describing Ukraine during the summer. And the problem that the Russians had is that, well, there were a, a lot of problems, but you get strung out on a road like that, you are absolute, you, you are not able to deploy. And I've only seen, oh, Dan, I don't know how many short videos I've seen, probably with, without exaggeration. It's somewhere probably between 80 and, a, and 100. I've only seen three where I actually saw Russian infantry after an ambush uh, deploying uh, to, to support uh, 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 the tanks and to attempt to uh, uh, suppress, engage, uh, capture, uh, kill the uh, Ukrainian ambushers. Even though there is a real terrain difference, the Ukrainians have been doing to the Russians something akin to what the Finns did during the Winter War, where they kill a vehicle at the end of the uh, uh, column, then kill one at the front, and then 
the thing is in the Arctic swamps, now they are stopped. But here the uh, 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 Russian troops that are stalled, here they start going, trying to go around the vehicle in front or back up and, and what, and they, they don't take aggressive action against, uh, against the ambushers. And what you do is supposed to swing your turret and just start blasting when you know where they are. Okay, maybe that's, uh, you know, out of all these videos I've seen, they were taken by Ukrainians who, who took off afterwards, and you don't see the Russians finally, uh, finally doing that. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've thought that. But I have seen absolute, at the officer level, failure to coordinate the use of the weapons the Russians have. Now, let's get to the other thing is their attack, use of attack helicopters. Man, they've really got what is the Russians do close to air supremacy. Uh, at least in terms of air-to-air. Uh, air. The fact that, and we've talked about this before, the fact that they haven't knocked out all the Ukrainian uh, mid-range uh, SAMs uh, um, amazes me, uh, but, but they haven't. So there are places that it's, it's risky for the Russians to fly. But I, Jim may, may know more about this. I have yet to read of a strike in Ukraine that has more than six or seven or, or, or eight uh, Russian high-performance aircraft in it. Well, you know, on a, the way the U.S. and NATO runs an air tasking order, you, we, might, we might have 60 or 70 uh, fast movers engaging uh, in a range, uh, 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 a range of strikes to uh, destroy, uh, isolate, uh, 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 destroy enemy, uh, isolate enemy uh, 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 strong points that just soften up the uh, area before the uh, armor uh, and mech forces uh, move in. I, uh, they, they haven't coordinated something that they should have every advantage with. They've ended up doing the one thing that we have all, I say, well, since World War II, World War I, we know Russians can do which is just fire a lot of artillery in a city and level it. Um, so anyway, I don't, the tank's not dead. Uh, the tank is, as you, we've seen it in Ukraine employed by the Russians, has, uh, <coughs> has been misused. And it's, it's almost, I know this is uh, taking it to a, a, an extreme, but it's almost like each vehicle is fighting in isolation. And uh, you're gonna lose. You're gonna lose. You're gonna lose a lot. Maybe you can. Maybe you can afford to take endless casualties. And that's certainly the way Putin's trying to uh, portray it in Russia. But uh, there are a lot of Russian officers that need to be fired. And uh, somebody's been lying to somebody. Uh, that's evident. Uh, in an earlier strategy talk, Jim talked about maintenance and. Uh, and uh, logistics, I did a little bit as well. We're seeing signs of just poorly maintained uh, armored vehicles. Uh, I don't know if they got them out of stocks or this is the way that they uh, they use them, but that's uh, that's also a, a failure in uh, in leadership. Maintain your vehicles. 
uh, check the tires <laughs> if you've got a, if you've got a truck, get new tires, and so you don't break down. Uh, <clears throat> it's it's really been an up down. I think I've covered it though about how you you can win with tanks, and I'll make one other uh, other point. The we're moving back to a more static war, and the Russians are going to be battling in the east. Uh, dug in positions there that have been <clears throat> uh, more or less static since uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine into the Donbass uh, in 2014, after they'd taken uh, Crimea. Ukraine, if it's going to win, is going to have to be able to conduct an offensive operation. And that's why they need tanks. I'm glad the, uh, let's see, the Slovaks have given them some. I think the Czechs have. I've read that a couple of other uh, uh, NATO nations, unnamed, uh, were providing them with former Warsaw Pact uh, equipment, uh, some of it uh, modified, some of it uh, apparently not. They need them. They also need airplanes. They need they, the MiG. Why they don't have the MiG 29s now? I read what the White House says. I'm, they know how to use them. And matter of fact, I read an interview with a Ukrainian pilot who said that, you know, the, the U.S. says it's it will take months for us to learn how to fly what he called the F series, meaning F-16, <clears throat> F-18. He says, I don't know. He says, I think some of us can figure out how to use one in a couple of days, maybe a few hours, because it's not all that different. I'll, I'll end it there. Jim, what do you think the Ukraines need next uh, in their efforts? Well, they need more vehicles, more armored vehicles. The, uh, Austin is, I agree with Austin. They're going to have to launch an offensive, a ground, uh, you know, a ground offensive against the Russians in Donbass. Uh, also, if they want to take back Crimea, it'll be the same thing, except they'll be attacking on, on a small front. Now, <clears throat> as Austin pointed out, the Ukrainians are very innovative, they're very entrepreneurial, and they're very motivated, something you can't say about the Russians. Now, something to remember about the Russians, one of their key problems, the reason why you know so many officers are killed and not doing their jobs, is because the Russians have not, despite many efforts, years over a decade of, of really trying, been able to create a, a career NCO corps, as it were. This, they recognized after the Cold War ended, was one of the keys to uh, Western military success. Uh, for example, a, a career NCO will make sure that the motor maintenance or motor stables, I don't know if they still call it that, it was one of the most unpleasant jobs for the troops to perform. Uh, if they just had officers, junior officers, you know, riding herd on that, they'd find a way to get out of it. Um, but with veteran NCOs, you don't. They, they, have, they have bitter experience about what happens if your vehicles are not maintained. And uh, we sure as heck got in there every week or every year, a couple times a week, depending on the time of year. I was in an artillery battalion, but we had a lot of vehicles, soft, soft skin vehicles. And... Uh, we, we climbed under the dam that, you know, we had the checklist of things to check on the vehicles. Uh, we tuned them up uh, during the winter time. I'll never forget uh, pulling guard duty once. Korean winters are bitter, like northern you know, New England and northern New York, where I grew up. 
And uh, we had to go out there. I forget what the schedule was every couple of hours and start all those vehicles, turn them over. Because if not, you know, key elements, you know, oil, what have you, would freeze up. And uh, come the dawn, and you, you had to move out, a lot of those vehicles wouldn't move. So you were on, you were on basically a, a vehicle warm-up duty overnight. Uh, that's why the guard duty <laughs> uh, section for uh, the wintertime was larger, because some of the guys had to run out there and basically turn on a, a certain number of vehicles uh, throughout the night just to keep them from freezing over. Now, the Russians don't have those uh, NCOs, career NCOs. They have some of them, but basically nobody wants to join the Russian army. Uh, we did a piece on this uh, about how the uh, reason why the uh, conscription is only for one year was because after the, uh, the Cold War ended, the Russians, since they could now vote, uh, they and, and basically protest more openly, they said, we want to end conscription. Now, the Russian government, even Putin, agreed that it'd be a great idea. He realized the value of an all-volunteer force. And as long as you're mixing volunteers with conscripts, you're really you know, limiting yourself. Because the main thing is, without a, how should I put it, an efficient force, people don't want to stay in and become career NCOs. Uh, they, they have to deal with so many problems that remain, like the one-year conscripts, uh, if they're going to do anything, you know, useful, indeed, that may be one of the reasons for the loss of the Moskva, uh, you know, uh, battlecruiser, uh, you know, destroyer, uh, a 12,000-ton ship. Um, a lot of those sailors are one-year conscripts. You know, it takes them most of that one year to basically learn, you know, uh, key um, uh, sailor skills like damage control. We still spend a lot of time on damage control, and we we basically saved a couple of ships that were badly hit uh, for one reason or another. Uh, in one case, the, uh, the what do you call it? The in 2000, uh, the in Yemen, the, uh, the the bomb, the suicide boat bomb, which tore a hole in the ship, the destroyer. Um, we our guys knew how to do it. In fact, since then, we've invented uh, computer simulations, you know, uh, first man shooters, so so to speak. Where you can basically uh, play, how uh, should I put it? Practice going into extremely dangerous situations, and uh, if you if you are virtually killed, you learn a lesson. All right, you don't do that if you got this kind of situation. And the sailors, uh, the American sailors, Western sailors in general, take damage control training very seriously. Russian sailors often don't get it, or if they get it, they don't get enough of it. Obviously, the Russians fought, thought they could figure, they could justify losing the Moscow by saying, you know, the crew was unable to be able to fire. Now, that's, that's bull hockey, as the saying goes, because uh, if there were a fire, uh, no matter how uh, vulnerable the spot was where it broke out, if you have effective damage control uh, teams, you're going to put that fire out. Uh, and, uh, and of course, it's, it's worse when they have to explain that they got hit by two Neptune missiles. Now, what they did do <laughs> the next day was they bombed Kiev. There were explosions. And at first, nobody was sure, you know, what the missiles were attacking. Because that's the only weapon they have. And they haven't got many of them left. Um, because they basically used up their war reserve. Um, and it turned out that they were, they were aimed at the factory that produces uh, the new missiles, new anti-ship missiles. Now, uh, Zelensky apparently foresaw that, and he's been asking the West, send me some harpoons. Now, they're not as good as the Neptune. The Neptune is apparently, well, it's basically a, a much improved 
uh, Russian KH-35 uh, anti-ship missile. It's got better uh, countermeasures, uh, and, and apparently it could get uh, get past uh, uh, Russian uh, ship defenses, even if their countermeasures, uh, you know, their version of phalanx and what have you, were operating. Uh, but in this case, they used a couple of their uh, their Turkish, uh, you know, UAVs uh, to distract the uh, the crew, and that basically uh, is is seen as the reason why the two missiles hit the uh, uh, the Moscow. Now, those missiles are not designed to destroy a ship that large with one hit, but two missiles started a fire which the Russian crews you know could not control, and they basically had to pull the crew out, and then of course. Uh, you know, Admiral Weather did the rest as it was under tow. It uh, got hit with a storm, and <laughs> a towed ship is not a controlled ship. And down she went. Uh, so the Russians may never know exactly why they lost the Moscow, but maybe they don't want to know because that's not the first disaster. They had the Kursk the submarine, a brand new submarine, uh, undergoing you know, in, in, uh, operating underwater in a uh, naval exercise in 2000, and boom, boom. Uh, you know the uh, the sonars, you know, picked up a, a small explosion followed by a much larger explosion. Well, they finally brought up most of the uh, the Kursk, and they were able to examine why uh, this new uh, submarine uh, with all sorts of new features, you know, went down. Well, the the first explosion was apparently a torpedo, which, when loaded into a tube, uh, was damaged. And that caused the, uh, you know, to to explode in the tube. That detonated uh, several other torpedoes in the torpedo room, um, and uh, that was the second explosion the sonar heard. And then the design features of the Kursk uh, turned out to be, how should I put it, defectively implemented. And the uh, the underwater protection, uh, you know, uh, failed. The uh, the uh, the compartmentalization failed. And the Kursk went down. There were, there was one compartment where about, I think, I think 28 sailors survived. But they also didn't have the Western uh, uh, ship, you know, uh, a crew recovery uh, equipment, which, you know, I think Britain had the closest one. And they, they, they volunteered this to air, you know, airlift it in, put it on a Russian ship and, and go out there and save it. They refused and they lost it. They lost the, the surviving crew members. Now, since then, the Russians have <laughs> basically implemented uh, that uh, that sort of thing, uh, often buying Western equipment to equip their uh, their their crew recovery, uh, submarine crew recovery, uh, you know, uh, uh, ships. Um, but they didn't have it when they needed it, and uh, now they've lost the Muscova. So you know, their submarines are are defective. They're they're there's the, the Moscow, which uh, two years ago underwent a, a several years of refurbishment uh, to update it. Well, it didn't update it enough. And and the one thing they can update is uh, is having veteran sailors, especially chiefs, chief petty officers, the the equivalent of you know uh, first sergeants and you know senior sergeants in the ground forces. Um, they can't they can't get enough of those, and they're at a perpetual disadvantage. And that's why we pointed out they haven't got a second echelon. They apparently offered rewards for people who would, you know, uh, sign up. They have a special uh, deal where while conscripts can't go into co- into a combat zone, even though uh, by their standards, Ukraine isn't a combat zone. It is an internal matter. Um, they uh, uh, A lot of these contracts, the reservists they called up, 
could basically uh, sign on for a, a six-month or 12-month contract where they'd be paid more. And they were, in addition, they were offered large rewards if they could destroy, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, 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 Ukrainian uh, vehicles or aircraft or whatever. And nobody took it. They said, no, I mean, uh, Ukraine is, is a death trap for Russians. And so they're having a hard time getting, you know, additional troops. In fact, at one point, the Ukrainians discovered they basically sent down the uh, the staff and cadets of a military school. And these guys are teenagers. And what, what teenager, you know, in training wouldn't jump at the opportunity to test themselves in combat? Well, they, they failed the test. Well, actually, they passed the test, but they died doing it. And um, so uh, the Russians uh, are really out of options. Uh, they're basically attacking civilians, but they have to get close enough to use artillery because they really have a limited supply of missiles left. Uh, they can't replace a lot of those missiles because a lot of them, uh, like their version of the American cruise missile, the caliber, uh, it does rely on uh, some Western components, which were promptly cut off by all the, the, the sanctions, that the super, the super ex, uh, sanctions they'd ever expected to be inflicted on them. Now, the Russians can... Uh, uh, convert some of their factories to producing some of these components. Uh, they've had to do that before when uh, when they invaded Ukraine and, and um, in uh, 20, uh, 2014, uh, there were a lot of Russian uh, aircraft and weapons which were dependent upon components coming from Ukraine, but suddenly they couldn't get those. The most important one were the, uh, the turbine engines for ships. <laughs> and it took them about three or four years uh, to uh, basically produce a second-rate version of the Chubasik. That's the uh, the primary uh, uh, Ukrainian manufacturer of these uh, these engines, uh, a substitute, and they're basically still suffering shortages. Now, this is, you know, this is seven years, eight years later. Um, so the Russians have basically put themselves in a very bad situation, and there's no easy way out. But Putin doesn't want to, you know, uh, uh, how should I put it, uh, quit. Uh, if he loses Donbass, that's bad. But if he loses Crimea, he's basically lost his reputation. You know, they've lost thousands. Uh, they admit now to over 6,000 dead. The Ukrainians keep better track of it. They think it's up to 17, 18,000 dead, which is more than they lost in eight years in um, in Afghanistan. And, you know, we lost 2,000 uh, in, uh, in even, uh, you know, 20 years in Afghanistan. Uh, so you can see, the, and the Russians are aware of these statistics. Now, a lot of Russians have been fed nothing but, you know, uh, state propaganda for the last oh, five or six years. The first thing Putin went after was uh, was uh, state control of mass media. So most Russians outside the cities don't have Internet, what have you, don't have alternate sources of uh, information. Uh, they're believing a lot of, uh, you know, the, 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 the lies that, that Putin is feeding them. But... As more of their their sons, uh, and these are the kids who tend to uh, at least try being a contract of a volunteer soldier, are not coming back, and they're not getting answers from the um, from the uh, uh, from the Russian government. Now, people again, people who have access to the internet in Russia, even though it's it's censored and uh, it's difficult to get information in, people in the cities are getting it. And they're finding uh, the, uh, the the uh, the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian general, the Ukrainian military, on their website is posting pictures of dead Russian soldiers uh, that they can't identify, 
um, and uh, just as a service, as it were, to the uh, to the next of kin in Russia. And a lot of the parents are finding out, oh, there's there's where Ivan, the, what happened? He, he hasn't written. He's dead. So that increases the anger. But that's a slow boil because, like I say, a lot of Russians are effectively cut off from this uh, this information that the Ukrainians are making available. But you can't hide a dead body, as the saying goes. And this was a problem during the uh, uh, the Afghanistan, uh, the eight years they spent in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, as the bodies kept coming back, uh, they were unheard of in, in the Soviet days. There were demonstrations. There were people basically making, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to deal with, you know, mothers, as it were, you know, demanding uh, an end to uh, this war that was killing their sons for what? And um, uh, and now they've got it on the, on an even larger scale um, in Ukraine, and there's no end to it. The longer they stay there fighting the Ukrainians, they're dealing with the nation in arms. Now, a ground offensive, even in, um, in Donbass or Crimea, you're dealing with, you know, Ukrainians who know the terrain. They know the people. There are a lot now. Most of the people in the, the, the civilians in the in the two half of those two provinces that Russia was able to grab before they were stopped by a unexpectedly rapid, you know, mobilization of uh, Ukrainian forces. Um, many of them have left, either gone to Russia, they were given Russian passports, uh, and they're, they're technically they had an election, a sham election, which you know declared their independence, but not. They were not annexed by Russia, which Russia did in uh, a similar situation down in Georgia in 2008. Um, they, uh, and a lot of the others uh, found their way into uh, Ukraine uh, by one way or another. Uh, and so you haven't got many civilians left there. And, uh, and if the fighting intensifies, they're gone. Uh, so the Russians are basically on their own against Ukrainians who are fighting for the country. Uh, what are the Russians fighting for? Fighting for, you know, their leader. Um, and uh, as they're finding out, that only gets you killed. Well, Jim, part of the propaganda pitch, and we, I know you and I both pound on this, but we're fighting for uh, Mother Russia, but greater Mother Russia, you know, the re- returning, the, re- returning to uh, superpower status, you know, will be a great power when we... Uh, return all the lost provinces uh, to, to the fold, even though Putin's got himself in a bind with his propaganda that Ukraine doesn't exist. And he goes around and, and, and talk, talks about how Russia and Ukrainian history are entwined and, and the like. Look, uh, one comment uh, on, about isolation of the Russian people, cell phones, the Russians have got a lot of cell phones. That's even in the outback. That's it, you know, in the little, uh, uh, villages now, they, they can be cut off. They, they can be monitored, but that's uh, that is a porous means of, of trans uh, transmitting a voice message and also uh, video uh, video and still imagery. And uh, I I read one article maybe a month ago about uh, Ukrainians knowing. Russians and uh, trying to contact them in Russia, tell them what's going on. So I don't, you know, that's it was just it, it made sense to me. Maybe they were trying to call, you know, friends and tell them, you know, we're all right, whatever. But that's that's also a, a way of, of uh, reaching 
the uh, Russian people. It, it breaks through the, they don't, they're not absolutely isolated much to uh, Putin's chagrin. Uh, well, well, what they did there, uh, what gave, what made that newsworthy, that story, was the Ukrainians were capturing a lot of uh, Russians. Right, right. And uh, if, the, if the guy was willing to give his phone number, they'd give him his cell phone. He could call up, tell him, Mom, Dad, I'm okay. I'm alive. I yeah. got captured. Um, and I'm calling from Russia. In some cases, the <laughs> Ukrainians would, would make the call first and say, you know, your son is okay. Here he is. Uh, and it, be, if it's a video call, they'd show the picture, and then they hand the phone over to the kid, and he'd explain to his folks what happened. Now, that yeah. gets around by word yeah. of mouth, as it were, even if the okay. Russians— We, 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 re we read the same thing, but it was also said that, you know, you know, Ukrainian civilians calling and, and, and the like, and I'm like, uh, uh-huh. But you're, you're, you're right about that, using that uh, technique. Here, call home, tell them you're okay, you're captured. But the, which is a— a heck of a message that bursts uh, bursts the bubble. One other thing on, on what to call the Moscow, because it's twelve thousand tons, isn't that? Uh, it's a, yeah, that, that's it, I, I really think it, it ought to be because I think it was uh, that size the Russians called a cruiser during the Cold War, a, a rocket cruiser, a missile a missile cruiser. But uh, yeah. oddly enough, uh, just yesterday, I got a phone call from a friend. Uh, who asked me about the uh, that attack on uh, the uh, on the Moscow? And uh, I I told her, and she called. She uh, she actually says, "Well, it's a destroyer." And I said, eh, "It's uh, off. It's around twelve thousand tons." But these terms have changed greatly from what you see in a World War II movie because. Uh, Arleigh Burks, the, the latest flight, they're almost 10,000 tons. I mean, and they're the, they're the size of World War II cruisers. But uh, any, anyway, I, I think that's, I'm not going you know, to uh, argue over the design, uh, designation on it. The, the fact is, is that those Neptunes worked. However, the uh, Ukrainians deked or jinked the uh, uh, ship's defenses, uh, more power to them. And, uh, you know, they got, I think your analysis, Jim, is about probably what happened when those missiles uh, hit, that the Russians don't know how to do damage control is dead on. But you know, I don't know how many uh, media sources will go into, <laughs> into that detail and understand that that's a war-winning Navy does, does battle damage, you know, damage control and, and, and succeeds at it, so. Even during the Soviet period, uh, the normal conscription was, I think, three years. Uh, eventually, went down to two and three. But if you wanted to join the Navy, which was seen as a more comfortable assignment, you had to tack on an extra year because it took that long to train sailors to, um, to basically do things like damage control or simply operate weapons. Another problem with Russian uh, 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 warships in general, surface warships, they packed a lot of weapons into a small, regular, oh, yeah. small ship. And what that meant was, and we confirmed this after the Cold War ended, we were able to examine a lot of these ships more closely and talk to uh, Russian officers and sailors, was that they did not have the capacity to repair problems at sea. Uh, American ships are large and they have larger crews, uh, partially because they have self-repair capabilities on board. 
They have parts. They have machine shop, machinists, machine shops, and what have you. They couldn't put that on a lot of the Russian ships. So if something broke down, and a lot of things did, you basically had the ship disabled. It was a common, <laughs> it was a common news item during the Cold War. You'd see a Russian warship being towed back to port because something broke down that made it a uh, a mobility casualty. And uh, and even even after that, after the Cold War. Whenever the Russians went on a, a long-range tour, as it were, say to Venezuela or whatever, um, they would take along a su- supply ship, which could which could basically do second duty as a tow uh, if something happened. I think that only happened in maybe one case. But the Russians are still aware of the problems they had during the Cold War. The problem is they haven't been able to solve them. In fact, they're 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 they realize what the basic problems are. They dismissed a lot of officers. Uh, in the first round of reforms, uh, because they basically had, even though they, the uh, Russian military lost um, 80% of its manpower uh, after the uh, after the uh, the Cold War ended, uh, they didn't basically uh, eliminate a lot of the officer positions. So you had a lot of officers who were basically responsible for units that no longer existed, and that took a fight. And uh, they, they, they got rid of those, but they still have a lot of officers, mainly because, as you pointed out, the officers served the role as of, uh, of NCOs at the lowest level, at the, you know, the platoon and the company level. And these guys are second lieutenants. And, you know, in America, they say, you know, nothing more dangerous than a second lieutenant with a map or doing anything <laughs> else. That's why you have a platoon sergeant. And one thing they, they teach officers, even at West Point, is pay attention to your platoon sergeant. And uh, and you had, you know, basically older officers telling you this and they tell a few anecdotes and what have you. And and the Americans would learn. But the Russians were never able to implement that. And so that's you're seeing the the after effects of that being played out in Ukraine. Now, another thing, I think this article hasn't run yet about how all the Western and the Russian, uh, you know, the, uh, the intelligence agency, and uh, the, those of the CIA, the CIA and several of the major countries in the West did not accurately predict what would happen if there was an invasion. We overestimated the Russian capabilities, even the Russians did, and, and Putin has since uh, uh, fired several hundred of his, uh, of his intelligence personnel. And, um, and, uh, and we underestimated the willingness of the, uh, the Ukrainians to fight. Now, we shouldn't. You know, we knew that was not the case. We were sending in weapons ever since, you know, 2014. We were sending in training teams, advisory teams, and what have you. These guys would come back and said, these Ukrainians uh, are not going to be pushovers. Uh, they basically, before the, uh, after 2014, they formed a territorial army. Now, they never got as many volunteers as they wanted, but the territorial uh, battalions, uh, there was, oh, God, a hundred and some of them. Uh, they did have enough people and weapons and, and uniforms to accept a lot of volunteers and to train them, you know, quickly to you know, operate in a tank weapon or, you know, your AK-47, what have you. And this worked. Uh, suddenly, they had lots of volunteers, <laughs> more than they could handle. And, uh, and once these volunteers realized how effective they could be, and most of them came back and were able to tell their, you know, the others, you know, well, this is how we did it. And uh, the, the Russians haven't got a clue. Well, now the Russians do have a clue, but there's not much they can do about it because they found out that they couldn't rebuild. They they basically 
lost about half of the battalion task groups. That's the the, uh, the, unit, the type of organization they've adopted over the last you know decade or so. Actually, they used it as early as World War II, um, but they never were able to overcome the uh, the resistance from the generals who wanted you know divisions and corps and what have you. Uh, and, and they basically pointed out, well, the Germans were very successful with the smaller, you know, battle group organization. Uh, we finally reformed our, our divisions uh, into, uh, you know, uh, German type divisions in the 19th, the road division. And then later, <coughs> uh, 20, 30 years later, we started uh, independent, uh, uh, developing, you know, the combat brigade, uh, which was a mini division. And this proved very effective. Well, the Russians went one step further and had these uh, these battalion task groups, um, but they didn't have the officers or the you know the, the, the trained personnel to make them work. And they found that out the hard way. And indeed, the, the Russian, the, the uh, Ukrainians claimed that they destroyed about a third of them and rendered another you know uh, third you know uh, <clears throat> uh, not fit for combat. In other words, they'd taken so many losses, they no longer had any unit integrity. And uh, and when they got these back to um, Russia, which is what they did recently in, in northern Ukraine, they pulled their, all, all their uh, their BTGs and other forces out. Uh, they found out they didn't have the people to uh, to rebuild them. And so, like I say, it's quite a fix. Well, one one comment on the BTGs, uh, they look a lot like what during the Cold War the Russians called an operational maneuver group for yeah. a for for a division or a road, op- that, a road op- operating detachment I, I, but it was well that's that, that those would be a, that, that would be a slightly smaller tactical group because when I was in the 11th cab we were supposed to ambush the hell out of those guys but the yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, OMG was uh, uh, very good troops from the division or maybe even from a uh, from a couple of divisions that was a, a task organized as kind of a super battalion with maybe a couple of tank companies, a couple of mech companies, and, and its own artillery. And they're, they're supposed to uh, run around, uh, go around uh, uh, strong points and, 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 and push deep. And I think the BTG was now a, a late 20th century, early 21st century attempt to resurrect uh, that uh, uh, that uh, uh, concept, but <clears throat> these guys have not trained, Jim. I know you know that they haven't trained in combined arms, uh, combined arms tactics, and that's that is what it takes in an offense. So I'm going to make a a little bit of a uh, of a projection here, Dan, about what we're going to see down in, uh, out of the Donbass. The Russians have figured out that they can't do the, the mechanized ballet. So they're going to line tanks up on narrow frontages. It'll be tough to ambush them. And they'll have infantry behind. And they're not going to do the one thing they have successfully done, if you call it a success, hub-to-hub artillery, not smart weapons, hub-to-hub artillery, and just try to smash everything, scorched earth, bombs or whatever, right in front of this uh, heavily armored, uh, armored fist and then lurch forward, and they're just going to keep lurching because that's something they can control. That said, lined up in the way I've, I'm suggesting you line these tanks up. Terrain always is not compliant 
they're going to have to break down in, in, in odd areas. And the drones, Ukrainian drones, and uh, some of their uh, smart uh, systems, and they've been extremely effective using uh, rockets. I, 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 Jim, I, the one I saw suggested to me that it, it might be a rocket with submunitions in it to kind of you know come down on top and at least get your mobility kill on a on a um, on a vehicle. Uh, the, the the operation with using the tactics I outlined, it can also be stopped with kind of a, a you know, frontal assault, dreadful losses, but I it it, it overcomes the deficiencies that they uh, demonstrated with their uh, uh, battalion task groups. Uh, I, I'm curious if they, you know, I'm, I said it's a projection. I, uh, they are uh, going, if you look at the Battle of Mariupol, which I understand the Ukrainian uh, uh, Marines surrendered yesterday because they ran out of ammunition. In an odd way, that's the way they fought that. Uh, the, Russian, the Russians fought that. The other thing is, is Putin now has a victory because he's connected Crimea to Russia uh, through quote-unquote Russian-controlled territory, which is why I say that uh, Ukraine's got to be able to launch an offensive and retake, retake something. But uh, we shall see. Yeah, we shall see. Russians we'll be here. The other thing the Russians have to avoid is uh, using all our artillery and uh, scorched earth. They'll create what the Romans described as a uh, desert and call it peace. That's right. right. That's, right. that's, that's exactly the whole purpose of annexing Ukraine. Yeah, but there's a, another phrase I've heard about, you know, the awful mathematics of the czar, you know, and Stalin, in other words, putting people in graveyards, you know, that's, uh, uh, oh, well, same thing. Yeah. Well, we, we hope the violence is over in two weeks, but I'm pretty sure we'll still be talking about this two weeks from now. We'll see you then, gentlemen. Bye, guys. Bye. Take care.